You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... Giving away stuff now costs money. Will lead to taking a certain risk. But the costs for all of us will be much, much higher if Russia wins the war in Europe. That's the head of NATO's military committee speaking at the meeting of allies at Germany's Rammstein Air Base. It's the cost of price Germany is willing to pay. New Zealand confirms Jacinta Ardern's replacement. We'll ask just who is Chris Hipkins. In Peru, civil unrest continues as President Dina Bluarte refuses to give in to demands to resign. Plus... What you can do is uh, to throw explosives from a helicopter or from some fixed installations on the mountain which then trigger an avalanche at a specific point in time. As the final guests from this year's World Economic Forum leave Davos, we talk to the man in charge of ensuring the snow stays firmly on the mountains. We'll also look at the international front pages, have a hit of business news, and in the light of so many layoffs, we'll ask if the tech bubble has burst. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. Sunday was Unity Day in Ukraine, but in Europe there seems to be a lack of unity when it comes to supplying tanks to the country. On Friday, more than 50 members of the Ukraine contact group failed to reach a decision on the supply of German-made Leopard 2 tanks, vehicles that Kyiv says are desperately needed to fend off the Russian invasion. Well, Katerina Yushchenko is the former first lady of Ukraine. Her husband, Viktor Yushchenko, was the president of Ukraine between 2005 and 2005. 2010. Katrina, it's lovely to speak to you again. Now, the head of NATO's military committee, Admiral Rob Bauer, whom we've just heard, says it's a political decision, but that many countries are in favour of supplying tanks. As he says, they're all sovereign nations. Well, we now hear that German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock has said her government would not block Poland if it were to send its Leopard 2 tanks without German approval. Is this the breakthrough Kiev has been waiting for? Yeah, thank you very much, Georgina. Indeed, we hope that's the case. First, I just want to say that we're really grateful for all the support and commitment and unity that we have seen, particularly from the UK, which has been the first, was the first to stand up and to help us and has committed uh, 14 Challenger 2 tanks. You know, the prime, your prime minister, your minister of, of defense has, have shown great leadership. Yesterday, former prime minister Boris Johnson was here in Ukraine. Um, in the last week, former prime minister Gordon Brown and um, human rights attorney Philip Sands <clears throat> have really stood up to help us in terms of um, a tribunal <clears throat> excuse me, for the crime of aggression. But uh, as you mentioned, we're very disappointed that Germany has seemed to constantly um, be wavering, having delays in terms of giving its uh, Leopard 2 tanks. And but we're very grateful that it seems to be a breakthrough from, the, from what the foreign minister said yesterday. And why is this particular model of tank, the, the Leopard 2, desirable? 
Well, it's um, it's what we need in terms of our territory in terms of maintenance, in terms of the type of fuel that is used. It seems that experts, and I'm not an expert, experts say that it is the one that is going to make breakthroughs. Our um, the, the head of our um, army has said that um, 300 of such tanks could really help us take back all our territory and end this war. And we have to understand that we're going against a thousand Russian tanks and thus, you know, 40, 50, 60 tanks will not be enough. We need 300 strong Western built tanks like the Leopard 2s to be able to to really make a breakthrough in this war. Now, the Ukrainian military have reported that Russian forces are attempting an offensive in the southern Zaporizhia region. What more can you tell us about that? Well, they. I think that they are. They have made a few gains after a long uh, series of Ukrainian um, victories. They've made a few gains, and that's largely because they are throwing uh, criminals en masse as cannon fodder. They're just sending them by the thousands to be killed in order to geolocate our positions and then attack our forces. You know, that's why it's very important, and the head of NATO has said this, and others have said this, to give us the weapons now. So while they, uh, before they become stronger, before they mobilize more forces, we are able to push them back and to, to continue the victories that we had had in the past. So, yes, we are losing quite a few people every day. Um, we are being shelled every day in the different regions. Seven regions were shelled yesterday. One person killed. A great deal of infrastructure was destroyed. You know, they continue to loot um, both residences, museums, schools, hospitals in the occupied territories. They continue to deport our people and our children. And uh, so it's very important that we fight back now before they are able to regroup and gain more strength. We're hearing many reports of the increased presence of the mercenary Wagner Group. Now, the U.S. says it's delegating Wagner as a transnational criminal organization. How much difference will that make on the ground? Um, We hope that uh, we saw the immediate reaction from Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, that he was uh, surprised. they have made they were formed in 2014 to when uh, Russia invaded Crimea and they have built strength they have made a great deal of money working in the Central African Republic and other places they have recently uh, recruited thousands and thousands of uh, Russian criminals these are we're talking about killers serial killers rapists to come and just fight in Ukraine Prigozhin receives a great deal of money for each of these prisoners and so he has no qualms about having each one um, killed they are being used as I mentioned as as cannon fodder. We are hoping that when the they are isolated, indeed when all of Russia is isolated, um, they will... Uh, they will just not have the strength to continue to fight in Ukraine. Mm, mm. Now, yesterday was Ukrainian Unity Day. That marks the anniversary of the unification between the Ukrainian People's Republic and the West Ukrainian People's Republic. That was signed way back on January the 22nd, 1919. How significant is that anniversary and how is it marked in Ukraine? Well, it 
it is very significant. And before Ukrainian independence, many people celebrated it as Ukrainian Independence Day from, 19, uh, from 1919 until we had our new Independence Day in 91. And in 1990, it was celebrated by a human chain that went across the entire country. And it's very important for us. But I do want to emphasize that right now, not only are we as Ukrainians more united than we ever have been in our history. And, you know, the, this war has has brought everybody together in a way that has been truly amazing. Every single human, uh, every single citizen has taken part in um, in this war effort from the old to the young, from the soldiers to the to the doctors and so on. So that's been very important. But we are also seeing a unity across the democratic world that we have never seen before and the support. And we are truly grateful for that. Uh, unity Day was also the day chosen by the former British Prime Minister to revisit Ukraine. As you said, Boris Johnson became one of Ukraine's most vocal supporters during his tenure. He was seen as a special ally in Kyiv. Since he was forced from power, there's been a great deal of negative press about him in the UK. He's now embroiled in a, a fresh financial scandal. How is he now received in Ukraine? <laughs> yes, we, we've read a little bit about that. That's always in the comments when he comes. That you know, We tend to laud him and we see that the, the British people tend to criticise him. But for us, he's a hero. Streets and plazas are being named after him. Um, because he was the first to really stand up and, and provide the precedent for other countries to support us. And we will never forget that. Now, there were other high-profile visitors to Ukraine recently. A trio of U.S. senators also paid a visit. Now, the U.S. president has said that Ukraine will get all the help it needs. How reassured are you by the promises from the West? Well, we are very confident that at least this year there is a unity. And in the United States, it's the only issue. Ukraine is the only issue that has bipartisan support, except for the radical left and the radical right. Most of the United States understands the importance as the introduction to your program today, that if we do not um, all come together now, we will face greater threats in our future. And it's, you know, if we uh, Ukrainians understand very well now that if if we do not win in the next year or two, uh, our children, our grandchildren will continue to fight just as we have through the centuries. They will have to continue to fight. And we want to end it now. Katrina, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's Katrina Yashenko there. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. It 
Just coming up to 2012 in Wellington, that's 7.12 here in London. Jacinta Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, resigned on Thursday last week. Yesterday, a formal vote endorsed Chris Hipkins as her successor. Ardern's last official engagement will be on Tuesday and Hipkins will be officially sworn in on Wednesday morning. Well, I'm joined now by Demelza Jackson, who's a journalist at News Talk ZB. Uh, Demelza, many thanks for coming on Monocle 24. This has all happened so quickly. How has the country taken this lightning change of leadership? It really has. I mean, to say in the least it was a shock, but I think to some it wasn't a surprise. The bigger conversation happening now is around the vitriol that Jacinda Ardern faced as leader in the last year and a half and how female leaders should be treated. Uh, In New Zealand, we sort of pride ourselves on having a fairly positive political culture, but the pandemic's brought out a vocal minority that have been slinging harassment at Ardern. There have been some shockingly credible death threats and in-person confrontations and an Auckland University study that came out today uh, has actually shown that nine out of ten hateful posts tracked in the darkest corners of the internet target Ardern. We know there are real concerns about Ardern's safety and support security even now that she's left the role. So the phrase being used is that they're really only is so much one person can take. Mm. And do you think that a lot of that hatred comes from her COVID stance? Is it her gender? What's driving that? Well, that study I was just talking about from Auckland University, it did pick up that a lot of the harassment she's received, particularly on the internet, was gender-based. I'm sure you can imagine the sort of horrible comments that are being made uh, in that space. But uh, we really have seen uh, a lot of this dialogue coming out around COVID-19. Of course, it's happened globally, but there are factions uh, with conspiracy theories uh, who, who fear that what the government was doing with our response was to try and regain an unfair amount of control. We've had protests in New Zealand about that, which is really not something we're very used to. It's more maybe something you might expect to see in America. So I do think it is fair to say a lot of this has centred around the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. Well, of course, Chris Hipkins, who's who's taking her place, is is now uh, Minister of Education and Policing, an interesting juxtaposition, but he used to be the, the, the COVID minister. What more can you tell Tell us about his past. That really is exactly how he rose to the limelight uh, as the nation's first COVID-19 response minister, being the face on the television whenever there was an announcement uh, about the pandemic response. Of course, because of that, he has received uh, some of the hatred that has been slung toward uh, Jacinda Ardern from those factions I previously mentioned before. Um, But in terms of his politics, he really is your quintessential Labour man. Uh, He was a student unionist during his university years. Uh, funnily enough, he was actually arrested at a student protest in the 90s, but a judge threw out uh, that arrest record. Uh, he He's taken uh, his, his first address to the nation to remind people he's from a working class background. Uh, he's focused on addressing the issues those New Zealanders face. I think we can probably expect some similarities between Hipkins and Ardern. The two are very close friends. They share the same liberal values. Um, 
but Hipkins says he intends on maintaining the calm, reassuring leadership style his predecessor has, although we can expect some differences, he says. Mm. And I wonder what differences those might be. I mean, for instance, uh, Ardern's controversial co-governance policy. Yes, Uh, Chris Hipkins has already made his opinion on co-governance very clear. He says there is a lot of misunderstanding about what it means and he's voiced concern that it's being turned into a catchphrase that is thrown around by his political opponents to scare people. What does it mean, actually? the, the the controversy right now about co-governance is around Labour's three waters reforms, which takes ownership of water assets from local councils and hands it to the government. Uh, there will be oversight of that new institution by a Māori-led board, uh, which is our uh, Indigenous group in New Zealand. Uh, the reasoning for that by Labour is that Māori are traditionally considered the custodians of the land, but much of that legislation for the reforms has been pushed through already, so there's really no going back. Uh, But whether Hipkins will push for co-governance arrangements in future policy is unknown. He has said, however, that he intends to clear up confusion on co-governance early on in his tenure. And what do you think his biggest challenges are going to be? Oh, gosh, without a doubt, that's going to be the economy. Uh, Chris Hipkins is entering this role at a very difficult time for the Labour Party and the country as a whole. Polls in the past year have shown Labour consistently losing support. And while inflation's relatively low compared to our OECD siblings, it's still at 7.2%. Hipkins will need to hit the ground running to try and show voters that Labour is still the right team to stabilise the economy, uh, keep people employed, businesses open. An interesting issue an economist raised today actually is that the opposition party national is really known for its brand on economic response. So Labour will need to find a way to have a bit of a point of difference in that space. Uh, Election day is October 14 and the next eight months is going to be uh, quite a battle proving to people that it's still the right party. I mean that many analysts are saying that actually the voters don't agree with that, that Labour will lose. Yeah, like I say, they have been slipping in the polls. I think there is that expectation at currently uh, that Labour will be moving out. And I, I don't necessarily think that would be unexpected. It's very uncommon uh, for a sitting government to survive a recession. And our Reserve Bank is predicting that New Zealand will sink into a recession within any time between the mid part of the year toward the end of the year. Uh, just before we go, I'd like to know a little bit about his deputy, Yes, Carmel Cipollone. Uh, she was selected as Hipkins deputy, and that's a moment that's being celebrated in New Zealand's Pacifica community. She's the first ever Pacifica person to achieve this promotion. Her father immigrated to New Zealand uh, from Samoa in the 1960s to be a factory worker, and now Carmel is the second in command of New Zealand. Um, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows, though I do want to say uh, Carmel has held the Minister for Social Development portfolio. She's faced extensive criticism for not ushering in the transformative changes Labour Labour promised to low-income New Zealanders in their election campaign. I mean, child poverty is still a really bad problem in New Zealand, so it'll be interesting to see whether she keeps that portfolio and is able to follow through uh, on those promises that were made six years ago. Demelza, thank you so much for joining us. That's Demelza Jackson there. And still to come on the programme, how do you mitigate the risks of avalanches? What you can do is uh, to throw explosives from a helicopter or from some fixed installations on the mountain, which then trigger 
an avalanche at a specific point in time. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. On December the 7th last year, the leftist former president, Pedro Castillo of Peru, tried to illegally shut a Congress and consolidate power. He was rapidly ousted and accused of sparking a failed coup attempt. Vice President Dina Bluarte took over the job but has faced growing unrest ever since. Well, over the weekend, there were deadly protests in Lima and the top tourist attractions of Machu Picchu and the Inca Trail were closed until further notice. Natalia Sobravia Perea is a professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent, and she joins me now. Uh, welcome back to the show, Natalia. Can you just recap on this failed coup? Well, Pedro Castillo had been under siege from Congress and he was going to be voted out. There were not enough votes to impeach him, but nevertheless, he decided that he wanted to shutter Congress and also intervene in the judiciary. But this was a very ill-fated attempt. He only lasted two hours. And then very swiftly, the Neoluarte was sworn in as the new president. However, in the south of the country, where Castillo had most of his support, people have not accepted this easily, and there have been there has been unrest ever since. And can you give us some idea of the scale and the makeup of the demonstrations? Well, in certain regions, uh, Puno, uh, Cusco, and the Huaylas, we're talking about a great number of people that are taking over roads, closing roads, closing airports and um, other important uh, state facilities. So the numbers are very large and they decided, many people from the South decided to go into Lima on Thursday last week and uh, do what they call that they take over of the city. Um, this didn't really materialize as a complete success, but there were thousands of demonstrators in Lima, in the capital, throughout Thursday and Friday. Uh, and a lot of those were centered around the university. What happened there? Well, the students at the Universidad de San Marcos had allowed, had invited uh, the demonstrators to stay because this is they have facilities, dormitories, and so forth. But the the the, the dean, the vice chancellor, had not allowed this. So it was her who called the police and said that these people had to be taken out of the university, and that's what the police did with excessive use of force. Mm. Well, let's talk about that use of force. How have the authorities responded? Well, I mean that's kind of been part of the problem. The response has been um, excessive. There has been um, 
use of force and, and shootings. There's been more than 54 people dead. Most of them demonstrators. There's been one policeman that has been um, attacked. And, and in most cases, they have been either people who are needing to go to hospital that never made it because of the roadblocks who, who died on the way or demonstrators who've been shot directly with uh, with an excessive use of force. So the authorities are using live ammunition? Yes, they are. About 400 tourists have been evacuated. I wonder how much economic and reputational damage Peru's facing. Well, as important as tourism is, it is not the most important industry in Peru, which still is mining. So the reputation, of course, suffers. And the areas that are most important for tourism are precisely in the south of the country. And the uh, region of Cusco, which is the the largest tourist attraction in the country, is very um, touched by the protests. Though, so the the situation there is very volatile. So most of the the tourists have been advised not to travel, and and there will be a large reputational um, repercussion on Peru. Now the protesters just want Bluate to go. How much of a, a real threat is it to her? Well, I mean, she does have the support of the of Congress at present, so she she doesn't really have a political problem as such. She has also the support of the armed forces. Uh, she has the the support of all the powers that be. So, in that sense, she she doesn't really um, have that much trouble. However. The more that the protests continue, we're talking about eight weeks already of nonstop protest. Uh, we do have to wonder what will happen next. There's been talk about the Congress uh, bringing forward the elections to 2024, but people in the streets are asking for her to um, renounce so that the elections can be in six months' time. I mean, she says that the situation's under control. I- is it? Well, certainly not under control. If you have to shoot people and kill them, that is certainly not being under control. I wonder how far what's happening in Peru is related to other protests across South America. Well, I mean, there is this uh, general feeling of uh, of, uh, unhappiness with how the situation is going in many South American countries. We saw this in Chile in 2019. We saw this in Colombia as well. And we saw during the pandemic in Peru and Colombia, great demonstrations. Uh, We also saw the reaction in Brazil, although this was more of a right-wing attempted coup similar to what happened in the United States. But we do see a lot of unrest and people after the pandemic feeling that they are very hard done by and that the that the changes in the system have not really brought them. Mm. I mean, in the last five years, Peru's had six presidents. How does the country extract itself from this kind of ongoing cycle of political chaos? Well, that is a very open question because uh, we will have another electoral process and it is very, very possible that the result will not be very different from what we had before. So the question remains open, is this really a a system that is representing the majority of people? And that is why many of the protesters are calling for a constituent assembly. Natalia, thank you very much. That's Natalia Sobravia-Perea there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. 
A 72-year-old gunman has died 12 hours after murdering 10 and injuring many others during Chinese Lunar New Year celebrations in Monterey Park, California. The suspect turned a weapon on himself as police approached his vehicle. Germany's foreign minister has said her country will not stand in the way if Poland wants to send its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. The apparent shift in attitude signals a possible breakthrough for Ukraine ahead of another Russian offensive. And police in Spain have arrested 27 members of a gang they say ran illegal tobacco factories where Ukrainian refugees worked in poor conditions. Lawmakers at the European Parliament reported that labour exploitation of Ukrainians is on the rise, citing desperation and language barriers as factors for taking informal work. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The Swiss alpine town of Davos is not only famous for its ski resorts and for being the host town for the World Economic Forum's annual gathering, it's actually also a hub for scientific research in Switzerland. One example of this being the WSL Institute for Snow and Avalanche Research that's based in the town. Marcus Hippie visited the facilities and spoke to one of its staff members, Martin Hegley. It's one of the largest uh, institutes in this field of research, so snow and avalanches. And we have also gone uh, beyond these topics in uh, recent years to other topics like natural hazards in, in the mountains, like summer hazards, like uh, rockfall, debris flows and things like that. Research, but what's, what's quite unique here is that we do on one side the basic research on snow and avalanches, but then on the other hand, we also are active in the uh, operational warning service for the whole of Switzerland, so for avalanches throughout the whole winter. Now tell me about the history of this institute. Why was it created and when? Actually, the predecessors of the institute started out in the 1930s. There was a called a commission for um, snow and avalanche research. A few scientists from universities in Switzerland, they met and there was a need to need more about snow and avalanches because a lot of infrastructure was built in the Alps, like roads and railway lines, touristic infrastructure like mountain railways and cable cars, and also hydropower infrastructure. And also the, the army had an interest in these topics because during the first World War I, um, actually there were lots of fatalities by avalanches in the Dolomites. So they wanted to be prepared also from the military side. And then in uh, 1942, the institute was founded formally as a, as a federal research institute. Now, Martin, where are we now? We're in this research facility that has many fridges. It looks like that to me, at least. Yeah, it's basically like large fridges. So we have uh, six cold rooms in here where we can do research on snow on a small scale. So we can uh, imagine this like a fridge in a restaurant, maybe, where you can walk in more like a freezer actually because most of them are operated like at minus temperatures because we have to keep the snow frozen and you have a snow making machine which is quite amazing so let's open the door of this fridge first the temperature over here is minus 25 um so we go in and there's this glass box in the corner what do we have here actually here we have the snow making machine so what this machine does it produces we call it nature identical snow because it's very uh, the snow crystals are very similar in shape to natural snow. Why do you need to create artificial snow, considering that there's a fair bit of snow outside at the moment as yeah. we speak? Yeah. All this helps us to have snow of the same type at all the time. Mm -hmm. We can also do experiments with that year-round. 
So if you want to do measurements in summer, you can imagine it would be more difficult to uh, get it from outside. So we have this machine here. You already mentioned that you run a Swiss avalanche warning system from here, so you are kind of surveilling what's happening where and how the temperatures are changing and you can predict where an avalanche may take place. What are the basic rules? What do you do then when you know that an avalanche is about to happen? Do you just wait <laughs> and stay away? Yeah, well, what the Institute, what SLF does is we um, do these uh, forecasts of the avalanche danger for the whole of Switzerland. There is actually a danger scale with uh, five levels, which indicates the degree of, of the danger. And then depending on the danger degree, so the system in Switzerland is that we have then responsible persons in the different regions who are taking measures in case it's necessary. What kind of measures? So different options. So maybe an obvious thing would be to maybe close a road, so block it, that no, no one will be there. In some uh, occasions, they will even have to evacuate some buildings, some houses. But obviously, people try to avoid this because it's also it's not nice for people if they have to move out of their houses. It's also, uh, if these are um, touristic regions, it's also a huge economic impact if you have to close a village or a place. So there are other options like um, artificially releasing these avalanches by basically saying bombing them. So <laughs> what you can do is uh, to throw explosives from a helicopter or from some fixed installations on the mountain, which then trigger an avalanche at a specific point in time. So we can secure the road. And once the, the avalanche is down, can um, again open the road and it's then safe again. What has been done also a lot in Switzerland was building protective structures like tunnels for the roads or railway lines, also structures up on the mountains to um, like snow fences to keep the snow up on the mountain. Have avalanches as no ever been an issue when the World Economic Forum meeting has been taking place over here? <laughs> yeah, it's always, of course, it's uh, always watched during the... I mean, we watch it for the whole winter, but there's a particular uh, eye on this, of course, during the World Economic Meeting, because there are so many people here at Davos, many important people, of course. So they want to drive in, drive out, and they move around here. So four years ago, I believe, it was in 2019, immediately before the start of the actual meeting, they had to bomb some of the avalanches, which threatened the road leading into Davos. And actually, this avalanche got a little bit, little bit larger than they expected. So it um, actually hit the parking lot below that, and there was one car which shouldn't have been there, and which was carried into the lake, which is nearby. They had to recover it in spring then. And that was Martin Hegley there in conversation with Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Well, it is 7.35 here in London, 8.35 in Zurich, and let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Georgina. We're going to start with The Times, and this is a story that's very big in all of the British papers. It's a kind of continuing saga of what appears to be institutional corruption in the government here. Nadim Zahawi, who is Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's also Chair of the uh, Conservative Party, misled his officials over text from Cameron. He's also in a lot of hot water about tax. So after a brief respite 
of political scandal in the transition from Liz Truss to Rishi Sunak. Um, we are back with a full-fat series of scandals um, in, you know, engulfing the conservative party. And, and you're right, the Times actually takes us in a completely new direction today, which shows you that there's this sort of drip, drip, drip of bad news about Nadim Zahawi, who is an extremely high-profile UK government official in the past and is now um, chairman of the conservative party. And what the Times tells us is that Zahawi misled investigators about whether or not he and the former prime minister, David Cameron, had been exchanging WhatsApp text messages about Greensill Capital. Quick reminder, David Cameron, after he was PM, uh, was lobbying the government on behalf of Greensill Capital, a financing company that then collapsed when it turned out that there was sort of no there there. Um, and he was texting with Zahawi about this when Zahawi too was a government official. And in fact, I think at the time Zahawi was Chancellor of the Exchequer. I should make it clear that he isn't any longer. That's right. Zahawi's had a number of government positions. He was vaccine minister, he was education minister, and he was briefly um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, the finance minister. And it turns out, of course, that he was texting back and forth with David Cameron about the green cell matter um, and can't explain why the texts had been deleted from his phone. Reminder to everyone, nothing that is deleted is ever fully deleted. <laughs> and they were discovered. Uh, and, you know, this is um, on top of what's happened with a revelation about his tax affairs. Um, he's recently admitted that he's paid a five million pound penalty um, and that that penalty was negotiated while he was chancellor of the exchequer. So there he is essentially marking his own homework. Um, this morning, what we're seeing in the media is that he said he's not going to resign. And that means one of two things. He's going to resign <laughs> or he's tossed the ball in Rishi Sunak's court and said, if I'm going to go, you're going to have to fire me. Yeah. And of course, this whole tax thing, he's been much derided because he said that it was an oversight. It was carelessness. I mean, how do you how do you have an oversight of that extent, particularly when you're a man in that position? He founded YouGov. Uh, you know, he would have had uh, accountants doing this for him. That's right. So how is a sophisticated businessman and an extremely wealthy individual? Um, and the accusations of, of tax manipulation are the result of a reasonably sophisticated tax minimization scheme involving offshore trusts. And it's not like you accidentally set up offshore trusts. These are something. These are things that take painstaking work. In 10 days time, the tax comes due for all of us. Uh, and there seems to be such a movement of people saying, why should I pay? Look where it goes. There seems to be so much corruption around. For instance, you look at Baroness Michelle Moan, where all that money went missing. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people and a growing movement to withhold paying. I can understand why. There's this notion called tone from the top, and that is that you set the example at the highest levels, levels of government for how you want your taxpayers and the rest of government to behave. And, and, and at the moment, there aren't any fantastic examples of, of people paying their taxes transparently, um, including, in fact, around non-DOMs and, and, and other sort of tax minimization schemes um, that have come very, very close to the heart of number 10. Mm, well, we'll come back to financial scandals in number 10 in a 
little while. First of all, let's go to Los Angeles uh, and this awful shooting of 10 people in Monterey Park. Uh, the shooter's now been found dead. That's right. So we're at the LA Times, in fact, the Los Angeles Times, um, and their lead story is authorities identify 72-year-old man as a suspected gunman in Lunar New Year mass shooting. And so just overnight and, and in time to make it into the papers, um, we see that the suspect in the shooting that left 10 people dead at a dance hall um, in a suburb of Los Angeles um, killed himself after what we learn in this story is that he went to a second dance hall and was armed and looked as if it, he intended to commit another, a second mass shooting. People at that dance hall actually turned him away and he fled. Um, and once he left the scene, um, he parked in the parking lot of a strip shopping center um, in another suburb of Los Angeles called Torrance and shot himself. And we still have no idea why. No. Um, in fact, the LA Times says that police continue to look for a motive um, and they can't find anything um, yet in his background or in his immediate activities that suggest why he would he would you know kill 10 people celebrating Lunar New Year um, at a dance hall in Monterey City, which is um, a heavily ethnic Chinese part of Los Angeles. Let's go now to the Japan Times. Trapped in trash. What a great headline. That's right. I'm trying I'm trying to take all of the stories from newspapers that have Times um, in their branding today. And we're in the Japan Times. Um, and there's a long read here that I recommend because it's really quite interesting. And it's one of these glimpses into elements of Jap- Japanese society that we don't always see. And you're right. The headline says, Trapped in Trash, Japan's Hidden Hoarders. And one of the things that makes this story interesting is, of course, Japan is the land that has given us Marie Kondo, um, who has taught the world how to tidy up. Um, And what the Japan Times tells us in this fascinating read is that there is a growing epidemic of people who are doing the exact opposite. Um, This is typically elderly people, but not exclusively elderly people. Um, It stems, the Japan Times tells us, a little bit from the country's emphasis on perfectionism, um, on the high-stress environment, a little bit on post-COVID isolation. Um, And, you know, Japan is home to famously small apartments and homes. And what the story tells us is there are certain places that are called Amazon homes, meaning they are there are people who live there that order packages on Amazon day in um, and day out, and they never open them and they just pile them up to the ceilings. I mean, some of the pictures accompanying this article really are extraordinary. The amount of stuff that's just accumulated. I mean, you can't walk around some of these apartments. That's right. Um, The the pictures are really quite graphic and and they show that some houses are piled high just with garbage. I mean, with absolute rubbish and trash. I mean, typical hoarding, you think of different kinds of things where people have 15 toasters or, you know, they have, you know, 20 microwave ovens and and things that they don't need and things that they'll never use. Um, In some cases, what the Japan Times tells us is that these are people who actually for years have never cleaned their house of rubbish. Wow, that puts my book collection into perspective. <laughs> uh, let's go back to uh, the UK government. But this is a story we, were, we, were, we mentioned briefly earlier at the top of the show. Boris Johnson's been in Ukraine, but this is off the back of another scandal involving him. That's right. So The Guardian says Boris Johnson makes surprise trip to Ukraine. Um, And as you alluded to at the top of the broadcast, the former prime minister who is now the MP for Uxbridge. And you have to ask yourself why the MP for 
for Uxbridge, is in Kiev, in Ukraine, um, and he says that he was there at the invitation of President Zelensky. What The Guardian tells us and what a couple of other papers have also zeroed in on is that Boris Johnson's trips to Ukraine and his phone calls with President Zelensky typically coincide with other news that he wishes not to be uh, publicized. And, and in this case, you're absolutely right, Georgina, there's another scandal around Boris Johnson, and that is that apparently um, the current chair of the BBC, Richard Sharp, is, is said to have arranged or helped to arrange an 800,000 pound loan for Boris Johnson. And magically, a couple of weeks later, he is made the chairman of the BBC. Um, that is all breaking over the papers over the past couple of days. So the former prime minister and the current MP for Uxbridge has packed his bags and went to Ukraine. And it's really important to point out the timing of that. That loan was while he was in office. That's right. As prime minister. That's absolutely right. Um, and, and so we're back to sort of scandal city here yeah. um, around Downing Street. Let's, let's go to America. And there's a new chief of staff in the White House. That's right. Um, Ronald Klein is out after two years of being uh, Joe Biden's chief of staff. And there was a little bit of surprise that he was leaving the White House um, because things were going fairly smoothly. There hasn't been that much turnover in the administration. And he's being replaced by somebody called Jeff Zients or Zients. I think we're going to play with the pronunciation of this gentleman's surname for, for, for days and weeks to come. Um, he is Joe Biden's next chief of staff after a brief transition. He is going to be um, taking control of the White House. Um, he is a former management consultant um, who was in charge of the administration's coronavirus response. Um, he'll be he'll have his feet under the desk in a couple of weeks. And his main task is really to get ready for the upcoming presidential election. Charles, thank you so much. Uh, that was Charles Hecker. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk business now with Annabelle Williams, who's personal finance specialist at Nutmeg, the UK's largest digital wealth manager. Uh, good morning to you, Annabelle. Let's start with Brazil and Argentina. Uh, they're going to talk about common currency. Tell us more. That's right. So this weekend, in a joint article penned by Brazilian President um, Lula da Silva and the Argentine leader, Alberto Fernandes, said that they we're thinking about creating a joint currency which would um, deepen economic ties between the two countries, make things like trade easier, reduce costs for businesses, moving goods around and uh, make it easier for people to move too. Now, um, from a European perspective, currency unions are a little contentious because of the problems that the Eurozone has had in the last decade. Um, that's chiefly with some of its members being heavily indebted. And people say the problem is with countries having a monetary union by you know, sharing their currency, but not a fiscal union where governments have different spending levels. But at the same time, it's worth bearing in mind that the economists who laid the groundwork for the Eurozone and with their work on currency unions, they were actually given the Nobel Prize. So I think the theory is out there that these things can work 
Mm. I mean, there used to be a, a, a well, there still is, I think, but it's much less strong. A kind of union of of uh, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay, the the Mercosur trade bloc. Mm. Is that something that they're looking to revive? Um, well. They've been having talks over the weekend, and um, so Lula's trip. Um, so basically, Brazil left a, a different group, which was um, CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States. And with this trip now, that this marks the return of Brazil to that grouping. Um, as for the Mercosur, uh, yeah, I mean, I believe that it, you know it still continues. Um, I think that this is just a really interesting story in light of. What we've seen in the last couple of years is countries, you know, wanting to do things differently from the global currency system as it is. There have been nations which have um, taken on Bitcoin as their official currency, for example, um, and kind of regionally within countries, there have been uh, places that have uh, brought in their own currency. We've seen that in London, for example, there's a silicon pound which you can spend around the area of Brixton, for example. And um, I think this is just an extension of that trend. Mm. Uh, let's go now to the FT and we're talking about huge hedge fund profit. Yeah, so um, John Paulson, um, he's the billionaire hedge fund investor who previously held the record for making the most amount of money in a single year. That was when he bet against the subprime housing market in the US in 20, uh, 2007. That record now has been smashed by a hedge fund called Citadel, which last year, which was a difficult one for markets, it made 16 billion profit for investors. So its founder, Ken Griffin, can now say that he runs the most successful hedge fund of all time. Now, that money was made after you. No, no, I I was just wondering how it was made. (laughs) Yeah, that money was made by um, large amounts of bets so across all asset classes. But big part of that was from government bonds. So there was a huge sell-off in government bonds because various governments, um, the UK and the US, were raising interest rates, which made their debt more expensive. And a lot of investors sold off those um, assets. Um, another important point to mention is the amount of fees that this hedge fund Citadel charged investors. So it made 12 billion in expenses and performance fees. And that really does highlight how there are many investors willing to tolerate very hefty um, fees in order to get good returns in this environment. Huge, absolutely huge. Uh, let's go now, uh, we'll stay with the, with the FT and look at this. Uh, banks prepare for deepest job cuts since the financial crisis. Mm, it's a very gloomy headline this morning. Um, so firings are expected to be, and I quote, super brutal. Um, they highlight Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley um, laying off staff. So, you know, there have been a, a lot of hirings of staff over um, the years since the COVID pandemic. We've had the last two years of what's felt like a recovery in a lot of industries. But um A number of U.S. banks have already uh, laid out plans to cut more than 15,000 jobs in recent months. And industry watchers are expecting others to follow suit um, as, well, recession looms. And are these mostly staff that were recruited recently over the pandemic to cope with online banking and so on? Well, 
it says that um, it's going to be everything, I mean, kind of widely across the business. But I think that banking um, in particular was an industry that it wanted people to come back into the office. You know, it had these uh, kind of grand offices with fantastic facilities in the centre of, you know, big cities, which cost a lot of money to run. They wanted staff to come back. Um, they cut off a lot of jobs during the pandemic in 2020. Um, a lot of those um, jobs then were returned. And here we are again, what, three years on from 2020, now looking at another recession. Um, I think it's going to be a very difficult time. But again, banking in particular is a cyclical industry. It has these periods of expansion of jobs and boom, and then kind of cut back. So I think for people who work in banking to an extent, you know, being laid off is always, you know, very, very difficult, but to an extent, it's kind of part of the industry. And it does seem that this is being led by Goldman Sachs. Yeah, so um, they've yeah they've made substantial amount of job cuts. Um, Morgan Stanley too laid off eighteen hundred staff in December, which was just over two percent of its workforce. Now I'm just commenting kind of more broadly on job cuts. You know, last week there was a lot of talk about the tech companies cutting jobs. Sometimes it seems like these are measures that chief executives do to grab headlines and to give their investors the perception that they're making big change. You know. Can, often companies can cut costs in many other ways, you know, kind of reining in salaries or training, um, you know, banning new recruits, that kind of thing. I mean, that stuff takes a lot longer to kind of feed through onto the balance sheet and it doesn't make such a big headline, I think. Annabelle, thank you very much indeed. That's Annabelle Williams there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Join Monocle 24 every day and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times, always keeping you ahead of the curve. Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from a lineup of brilliant minds every day. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Catch up with Monocle's bureau and correspondents around the world. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Every weekday at 1300 CET, midday in London and 7am in New York City. Keep your appointment with The Briefing, weekdays on Monocle 24. As my last guest was saying, it's uh, not just the financial uh, industry that's facing job cuts, but the technology sector too. I'm joined by Josh Coles, who's a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Josh, within tech, what's the extent of job losses? Good morning, Georgina. Well, it seems, as you say, that tech is not immune to the more general pressures facing the economy. But I think tech is particularly vulnerable at the moment, given its hiring spree that it went on uh, during the pandemic, when we were all, of course, condemned to our homes and condemned to using our digital devices to stay connected. That uh, period has, of course, ended, which means that uh, tech companies now feel that they're slightly overemployed, really, in terms of how many resources they've got committed to their business. So I think tech is uh, perhaps correcting now. Um, to the uh, to the hiring binge it went on uh, over the last couple of years. Now, there's lots of horror stories of how this has unfolded with workers fired with little or no notice. Can you tell us more? That's right. So uh, Google in particular announced uh, the layoff of about 6% of its staff on Friday. It's saying it's going to have a town hall today, uh, later today for uh, uh, affected employees and everyone else. 
But uh, being uh, fired by a tech company is perhaps a little bit brutal because you often get, uh, you suddenly lose access to your uh, files and to your uh, corporate uh, systems, which can be the first indication you have that anything's actually been, uh, that anything's gone wrong, uh, as well as perhaps the, the, the news notification. So I think it's a particularly uh, stark uh, feeling to be uh, sacked by a tech company. Of course, we must set that against the fact that these have been um, quite good places to work in some ways for a while with very generous packages uh, in terms of both base salary, but also things like stock uh, bonuses and, and things like that. Um, so it's a case of the rougher, the smoother, I think. But I think this will be a very stark wake up call for those who've been affected by the jobs, particularly those who only found out uh, because they couldn't log into their company systems. Brutal. I mean, what happens to those skilled workers now? Well, I think the problem for them is that there is maybe a little bit of a, a glut of supply because we have very uh, lots of talented tech workers who are now on the job market. Of course, Google isn't the only company uh, to have announced these uh, cuts. Um, just between the big four tech companies, Meta, uh, Google, uh, and uh, Microsoft, uh, and, uh, and uh, Amazon, uh, we've seen about 50,000 people cut just from those four tech companies, which really does, I think, show the extent of the problem. That adds to about another 150,000 across the tech sector more generally. So that's a huge number of people now entering the job market and accustomed to uh, good paying, good working conditions. I think the trouble is going to be that in the short term that, that those jobs are going to be hard to come by. So has the tech bubble burst? Well, I think it's difficult to say. I think there was a, a particular kind of bubble going on in the tech industry over the last couple of, a couple of years, fueled in particular uh, by the pandemic, where companies were making um, you know, really generous offers to bring on staff, partly to keep them away from other companies uh, poaching them instead. So this kind of tech talent bubble I think is has sadly now uh, burst in the sense that the glut of um, demand for tech workers has has dried up, and that does mean that I think there's there's not that that cycle is going to reverse. Of course, in in, in overall terms, we're talking about five to six percent of these companies' workforces that are being uh, laid off, which is not um, by any means uh, enormous by historical standards. And indeed, even just to the year to uh, September twenty twenty two, Alphabet had hired about as many or more people. Uh, in that period as they're now laying off. So this is a, uh, a correction at the, at the top of the chart, if you like, in terms of the numbers of employees that they have. Uh, but nonetheless, for those affected, uh, if you're one of the people affected, it, it certainly uh, doesn't help. Uh, and what about uh, the, the kind of efficiency and the growth of the tech that we all rely on? Is this going to damage the user experience? Well, it might well at the margins. We, you know, it might be that certain services that we're accustomed to using get shuttered uh, and things like that. I think more generally, um, it does point to a slight slowdown in the ability of these tech companies to innovate. So generally, they'll protect their core uh, businesses um, like search and ads and things like that in the case of Google. Um, but these kind of moonshot projects are the ones that tend to be affected. Now, the exception to that, uh, one that the uh, Google CEO made very clear in his blog post announcing the changes, is AI. Uh, Google is said to be slightly concerned about the rise of open AI as an AI-first uh, rival uh, in this space, which, of course, now released their um, very powerful chatbot recently. And it's even allegedly called in its first employees, its co-founders, um, Bryn and Page, uh, into the office, allegedly, to discuss uh, how Google can respond to this. Hmm. And certainly in, in the blog post, uh, AI was first and foremost. So whether Google continues to innovate in this space, I will have to wait and see. Josh, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this programme. Thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Paige Reynolds and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Paminchuan, and our studio manager, Callum McCain, with editing assistance from Jack Jewers. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and, of course, the brief 
briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. Listener.